What are your uh, what do you Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker, somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program is produced with an artistic vengeance and a lackadaisical attitude. By Magic Matt Allen of the Outlaw Radio Network, true crime uncensored, I am the, yes, legendary Burl Bear, the man sitting right there, Howard Lapidus. Yes, I am. Manager of the star and every burglar in sympathy in the world. Yeah, I've got a high class class. You do. You have a very high class 47th Street back alley. Uh, and it helps that I have uh, Chris Darden, too. Yeah, you do. Uh, well, yeah, well, so there you it's go. a good combination. Yes. That's like uh, Owen Band, who, uh, who was a cocaine dealer and his brother was the DA. Yeah. Yes, Mark C. Boyer. Thanksgiving was interesting at his house. Always was. Yep. Mark C. G. Boyer, our fact checker, is here. Heavens to Murgatroyd. I hate you pieces to pieces. We have Sean Sullivan today, a man who knows more about artistic bulletproof vests and women with bags over their heads. Uh, hey, guys. Hi, Ed. Sean, so how are, you, how are you guys doing? Thanks for having me on today. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, our pal uh, King Punch turned us on to you, and I love your art. And I uh, I hyped you to uh, Carol Kaino, my cousin, who's the, uh, the art writer. <laughs> He oh, thanks, a, thanks, guys. Yeah, Punch is a one-of-a-kind gentleman, that's for sure. <laughs> you know, he was a legend growing up in uh, in, in New York City. Really? <laughs> Tell us about Punch. The heck with you, Sean. Tell us about <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, there's not too many people in that, like, circle in New York City, especially Manhattan, um, that kind of run in those same circles, uh, you know. And I, uh, I started off in 94 working in the, the club of the tunnel 94 95 you know 96 is when i um was introduced to my for the very first time to federal agents i was only uh you know turning 16 at the time um the only reason why when everyone got picked up from the tunnel and limelight with peter gation was uh, because i was getting my knee surgery my first knee surgery done from an incident I had in Central Park with a very unhappy gentleman. And I, uh, I, I quickly learned how, uh, you know, the New York Cities and the, the Feds and other underworld uh, characters kind of worked with each other. I learned at a very, very young age. And Punch's name always came up. <laughs> and, um, you know, we knew uh, there was always a thing, you know, they, people would ask, is it, is he Russian? Is he Yugoslavian? Is he Czechoslovakian? You know, what is he, Ukrainian? And you would always ask, and they would say it was, oh, it's a, a kid from Hell's Kitchen or a guy from, um, you know, the Diamond District. Everybody would want to know if it was Punch because, uh, you know, his reputation preceded him all throughout New York City. And uh, I, I, I grew up, you know, reading stories on him, too, and um, he was definitely an inspiration uh, behind some of the Pink Panther stuff I do and his crew. Um, those guys were legendary. They were legends. And um, some of the Italian guys I grew up around, they all knew of, uh, you know, the Pink Panther crew. And my grandfather knew about the Pink Panther crew. And these guys were real deal. So, you know, and, um, and uh, you know, he's a solid guy. So if he asked me to do something, I'm going to do it. Hey, cool. Well, he asked you to do this. And we appreciate it. I've been looking at your art. I get a, I got to admit I get a kick out of it. I'm I'm what we call in the trade an alter cocker. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, you know, I got lucky because um, I thought I was going to go do a 15-year bid, you know, starting at 15 under my federal guidelines. And I, um, I started painting because <clears throat> I found myself just, I, you know, falling into a really dark place. I had just, you know, a, a five-year-old daughter. I had my son who was not even, you know, a year old. Um, and I kind of, you know, fell into like a really bad place, uh, during all my trials and stuff. And I just, um, I started drawing and painting and, 
all throughout my years of New York City, I kind of started collecting, you know, different humans. I'm a human collector. Uh-huh. Uh, some people collect cars and jewelry, like Punch, but I collect humans, really cool characters, as a matter of fact. You, you, don't, and you, don't, I, store, um, you don't store them in your, in your uh, uh, wall, wall boards, do you? <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> Most of mine are like music, uh, entertainment people, guys that, that own clubs, restaurants, politicians. I grew up on the Upper West Side, um, and I kind of grew up in between the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side and the Bronx, so it kind of allowed me into all the different neighborhoods, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What was your cross street through the park? So I was on 71st Street um, on both sides. Yep. Uh, but 71st between Columbus and Broadway, and then I was on 71st between 2nd uh, and 3rd. Yeah, a block away from the Dakota. Yeah, I, I grew up, so my my the people that were the Supers were very close friends of ours for a very, very long time, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in and out of that building a lot still now nowadays. Ah, it's, uh, it, I get a kick out of the, uh, the pop culture references and the cartoon references, because that's all stuff from uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, well, I mean, they're classics here. People are going to always going to want to uh, navigate themselves towards something that they're familiar with. Yeah, and I, I, I <laughs> so the, the 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 art and the the cartoons and the you know the some of the realistic photorealistic stuff I do with the the little boy smoking is an ode to my grandfather, who was a real real G in the Bronx for a really long time, and. Um, now that's All the the kind of your, your uncle, life. your uncle and his buddies, uh, were they doing the uh, what I call the aerosol art? <laughs> Box yeah, bar so beautification? Tra- tra- Tracy One Sixty Eight was a legendary, legendary graffiti artist. He was he was the first to really bomb trains. He was doing um, you know wild style lettering in nineteen sixty eight. Wow, uh, maybe even before uh, in New York City. And he started the legendary crew Wild Style, uh-huh. and he really was kind of not only the godfather of uh, graffiti, um, and he's credited for being the godfather of graffiti, but he's kind of really a, an important part of the hip-hop um, culture, Yeah, because there's, you know, elements of hip-hop that include graffiti, you know, dancing, b-boying, you know, breakdancing, music, and then culture itself, and he was kind of the guy that would build the uh, flyers for all the, the DJs that started hip-hop in New York City. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, without the flyers, how would they get the information out to the people? Right. So he was a graffiti artist doing flyers and then going around all the neighborhoods because that's all he would do is go around to the neighborhoods and, and do graffiti, bomb every all the buildings, and hand out flyers, and people would see the Cool Herc and Grandmaster Flash and all these people. And then they would come, and he would, you know, bring together a lot of the different gangs because he was doing the logos for all the gangs in the 70s in the Bronx. Huh. You know, he was he was hand-drawing logos for all the different gangs and their colors and everything like that. So he was on neutral, you know, grounds with everybody. Like, he was able to fluidly move around everybody just because of his art ability. And that's kind of where I learned my hustle because... You know, I've been in all the business, the drug business and the counterfeit business and the fashion industry and the music industry and the restaurant industry. I've owned restaurants and everything else. And the thing that I've realized that gets me in all the doors and really gives me the biggest opportunities is the art. Mm-hmm. My paintings, it's almost kind of, they're almost like, it's like magic with artists, what they're able to do in the in the rooms and the dinners they're able to get um, because the, the paintings have some sort of magic value to them. And it might not seem like a big thing when you look at it on like an Instagram or a social media website, but when you're when you're a collector and you know the value of an art, especially if it's a investment grade painting, mm-hmm. people start to kind of gravitate toward you differently. And that's how that's how I've gotten in a lot of the uh, really good situations that I'm in. You know, uh, yeah, talking about uh, how it graffiti, uh, yeah. graffiti and or. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so far behind in, in the actual terminology, so help me out. But, but uh, you know, uh, it, it's obviously known that Nipsey Hussle passed it. But I was extraordinarily impressed this week in Los Angeles how much Nipsey Hussle art went up on buildings and bridges in Bears Oh My. And how did you guys do that so quickly? How, how does that work? I mean, the, the individual artists that do those pieces, I mean, it comes from a real feeling. It comes from a real, 
it comes from a real passion and a real soul. So, I, I, like, I can sit in a studio and crank out 14 hours of work and not even notice that I'm there for 14 hours. So all those artists that went out there and did all those pieces, they did it for the love. Like, and that, and I knew Nipsey. I, I, I had a relationship with him. I'm one of the first guys that had him in, here in New York. And, you know, I mean, the, I, I, I was with him during the first recordings of his, for beginning of his albums. And... I watched him, and I watched, you know, his soul, and he was such a good dude. He was such a good human, and he cared about the people that were around him. But unfortunately, the people around him fucking killed him. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, go figure. You know what I mean? So the, the the impact that it had on that on that neighborhood was so grand. Yes. And 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 the, and the artists that I, I mean, I, I I know friends that already have mural tattoos on them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it comes from a place of like real passion, like you know, to get those that amount of work up. Well, I mean, I, mean, I, like, I, I can see that for you know, for a white guy from Encino, I, I I must say I did not really know much about him, and it unfortunately took his death to have me sit down and educate myself, and boy, what an education! Uh, and, and I'm going, how is this guy gone? Oh my God. You know, it, yeah. there was just so much more to go and, and so much more for him to do that he was he was compelled to do. And uh, No, he was a smart dude. Him and his brother Sam, yeah. they were real geniuses. They knew that, you know, I, I sell one French fry, I get two French fries, I sell two, I get four, you know, and, and, and that, that model that he that he kind of drew for himself for um his first set of albums, he he knew the path that he had to go to become an independent human in the world of sharks, especially in the music industry. Yeah. So one of his first things that he did was, in order to fund his label, he sold 100 mixtapes for $1,000 each. Wow. Because he knew the importance of scarcity. And with that, he was able to take his his $100,000 and he was able to go out and start his own record label. And he made it. He made it happen. And he stayed independent and he stayed you know, independent of some of the vultures that are in the music industry. And he really went out there and he did it himself. And he bought one store and then used the profits to get, you know, bigger loans to open up a second store. And then he, he you know, um, he, he employed his friends and he employed the people around him, the people that cared for him. It's a shame what happened to him. He he went really too fast. He did not deserve to die. No. Few people do, although I can name a few. Uh, yeah, you have your list, don't you, bro? Yeah, I have my yeah. list. <laughs> yeah. you, have your, you have your list of people that died too soon? No, no, no we have that list, too. Because yeah. the list of the ones, would, uh, you know, we I don't think dying, but uh, leaving the country and uh, and my purview would be good. <laughs> i tell you one thing that's always fascinated me, not only in, in, in your life, in Punch's life, and my life as well. And I have a, a, a saying that if it weren't for having a double life, I'd have no life at all. You know what? That's that's just, that's funny you say that. I kind of say the same thing, uh, you know, to uh, my girl about it. I say if there's not there's the layer cake life and there's the Sean Sullivan life, and sometimes I don't, I forget which one's which, and I and, and I, you know what I mean. Like yeah. I kind of have to live two lives in order to survive sometimes. Yeah, uh, there's also this saying is don't bring the street home. Yeah, I, I was really good at doing that, but sometimes you end up bringing it home and it becomes real messy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very similar to the way serial killers think. Sorry to tell you, but it's the compartmentalization process. Look, anything you do with passion, and I don't care what if it's serial killing or whatever. Seriously, it's it's very hard to bring anything, not bring anything home. Uh, no matter what business I've been in over the years, it comes home. Sorry. Uh, you know, yeah. the brain doesn't turn off. I mean, unless we work in nine-to-five jobs and punching clocks, I mean, I sometimes uh, envy some of those people. They punch the clock at five o'clock and it's over um, until the following morning. But that's not who, who we, we, you know, associate ourselves with. It's a different, a different world. And our world, yeah. you're compelled by your art, and you can sit in a studio, as you said, for 14 hours and not realize a minute has gone by. And we can sit here talking on the radio, and same thing. Or when I'm writing a book, it's the same thing. Yes. I used to tell when I was married, I told my wife, I had a deadline, I'd say, I'm going to be locked in a box. And I would go yeah. into my writing room, and time vanished. 
All that existed was the keyboard. Turned out she yeah. threw the box out. Yeah, <laughs> she threw the box see, out. See, what, what, what I was doing is for, for a really long time, I mean, I was hustling for a good part of 15 years, and what happened was I was using all the hustle money to fund a very lucrative real life. I had clothing companies, I had businesses, I had, you know, investment in restaurants and, and various companies all over New York, and I... I ended up living really two different lives just because of the amount of, you know, hustling that we were doing. It kind of really got, it, I got lost in it. I got lost in both worlds. That's what really happened. And it wasn't until I discovered that I could sell a painting that my life kind of felt complete and different. Like I, I did a real, real 360 the second the feds got me. Um, but it wasn't until I, I, I figured out after the feds got me and I had to go through my, my trial and I have to beat everything and I have to, you know, outsmart the feds and just get everything together. I had to, you know, start at less than zero. You know, a really good mentor of mine said, Sean, you're, you're now at less than zero. You have to build yourself up to zero before you start a new life. And that's what I that's what I was doing for about five years after I after the feds got me because they had me on such I mean my pretrials lasted over five years because oh it was God. such a big case and they were accusing us of such crazy can you, shit. Can you tell us about the case? Yeah, so um, I got picked up for marijuana trafficking, but they had they had said that we did about two point seven billion dollars worth of marijuana transport. That's a lot. Um, and then the crew that I got picked up with um, wasn't my crew. Um, the, it was a different crew, and they couldn't figure out where I belonged, and then they figured out that I belonged to a different end of the business. And then they started do, digging and digging, and what happened was um, I was doing direct sales of, uh, you know, 200 pounds, 300 pounds, 400 pounds um, to the feds. And I thought I was doing a delivery to another guy, um, to this another driver who um, was from a different crew because our crew, my crew, had kind of gotten into some real bad trouble uh, with the feds already, and we were trying to already outwork them and outsmart them. And meanwhile, we were trying to work off a $3 million debt with our Connect, and we were now taking on larger and larger amounts of deliveries and then we were delivering them to other crews to take off money from my uh you know yeah, from our yeah. bill every time we did delivery to another crew they would take off you know fifty thousand dollars hundred thousand dollars whatever the case was and i ended up getting caught with a different crew oh boy um but when they started playing tic-tac-toe and they realized we were all interconnected and then they realized that I had some Italian connections, they really came after me and they sat on my house and they drained me and they would send in undercover to pretend they were so, it got real messy for, for, for a lot of years. And like I said, I was a young, I was a young father. I wasn't even 30 years old yet. And we were, they were trying to link us to people in Chicago with, you know, missing heads, and they were trying to link us with people in Israel, and they were trying to link us to people in all around the world. And, you know, we didn't realize until the Fed sat me down, and um, they, they basically showed everything to me. They basically showed how they have it, had it all figured out. Um, but it was all done in the wrong direction if you know what I if you know what I mean yeah. uh, by their boards and I was able to kind of work out something called a clean for a day which is basically a safety valve which was if I pled guilty to my charge and I pled guilty to all the other charges that I would have the chance for the judge to legally allow sentence me under my guidelines but then after a year of them them giving me my safety valve, and I didn't have to rat anybody out. I, had, I would have never done that anyway. Not only that, my lawyer, Mike Rosen, doesn't represent rats. He's an old Gambino lawyer, a very close friend of the family. And he, uh, you know, came and got me out of jail right away. Left the Bahamas to come into New York to come get me. And, um, you know, I, I knew right away that he was going to help me and we were going to outsmart these guys. But the thing is that my dad always said is that one alone is kind of dumb, but a whole bunch of them together is really smart. 
So it was a long time. So my case, my trial lasted five years before sentencing, six years before sentencing. Well, you must so have sweat for a long lot of transition. years. Were you sweating it though during those years that they made Paul? I'm sorry, what? Captain Obvious. Were, 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 yeah. were you sweating it pretty intense those years? I mean, were you afraid that they were going to, you know, pull the rug out from under you and not give you what they were? So, talking? so about a year and a half into them offering me the deal and me taking the, so I took the guilty plea right away. I, I took the guilty plea. I pleaded guilty to. Um, you know, organized crime and distribution, international drug trafficking, and uh, a couple other things, money laundering. And then you're like, you're standing there, and they're like, kind of like going through all the charges and everything else. And you're like, oh man, this is a lot, right? And then a year and a half later, they they like kind of took the deal away from me. Ooh. But well, I had already pled guilty. I had already pled guilty in a federal courthouse. Oh, you were screwed. But, you know, I don't know. I'm sure you, you guys, you know, I know you guys are well uh, adjusted. You guys, one of the first things they ask you, the judge asks you is, have they offered you a deal? Like, that's the very first thing they ask you. You know, the judge is standing in front of you. You're looking, you're looking at the judge in this big, scary Brooklyn federal courthouse, and you're standing there with your, your, your very expensive lawyer, and you're looking across the table. There's, like, eight DEA agents, FBI, ICE agents, you know, eight, you know, all DAs and everything else. And they're like, did they offer you a deal? And you look at them, and they're like, they already tell you to say no as soon as you go in there. You know, and you're like, no, no deals. So now you're on, you're on record saying doesn't no deals. Doesn't the judge know it's yes in the first place? Yeah, no, you say, yes, you're fucked. Forget about it. Like, they, they might just end up whacking you in the middle of the courtroom. Are you kidding me? Like, you can't go against those guys. Those guys are the biggest gangsters in all, like, they're, all of the world. Those guys are the biggest gangsters. Once we knew that this crew was after us from ICE agents were after us, we knew it was over. We knew that, like, these guys were going to just very methodically get us. And it was just it was just time. I was just saving up money so I can go buy a farm up in Cooperstown and open up an organic farm barbecue restaurant and just get my family out of the Bronx altogether. Why did you, you know? And and, and and I was so close. I was so close to getting there. Uh, but once we knew this crew was on us, it was over. Like it was just like so what, what were, these guys were. They, there was there. Uh, you know, I don't know who did it. I'm not saying that on, on record or anything. But guys were getting whacked in the neighborhood. Other kids that were like, you know, making fifty thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars a week. You know, a million dollars a week from selling just marijuana. I was only in the marijuana business, by the way. I wasn't in any other business. Gee, do you um, feel like going back into it now? No, me? No, I don't. I, I, I have lived such a good, healthy, clean life, well, selling mean, paintings, it, 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 and I'm being approached by big corporations. I'm being approached by, you know, collectors from around the world. I'm in galleries all around the world. I would never do it again. I'm not talking about the illegal kind. I'm sorry, what? Oh, what, getting high? No, 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 no it's, it's legal, like, here in California and in Washington. Yeah, no, so, I mean, I have I have several situations set up um, with marijuana companies, and I run um, corporate raises uh, for investment firms and for marijuana companies, and I'm, I'm heavily involved in the marijuana space. Well, at least you have the experience. <laughs> yeah, so you make some friends, you know, and what happens is, you know, you end up learning a lot of people's secrets, and then you make sure that your se their secrets are safe with you, and then you come back 10 years later after you're, you're done with probation, and everybody's like, hey, Sean, we're happy to see you again. Yeah, where if you didn't do that, they wouldn't be you know, happy 10 years you. later, 11 years later, everyone's not kind they're they're not like outlaws, you know what I mean? Now they're like running like $200 million companies, $300 million companies. I mean, like guys that I know that I used to be in the trenches with, they're, they were, we were like hustling and we were like, you know, traveling back and forth from different states with 100, 200 pounds. Now they're like doing deals with major, major corporations, Hershey's, you know, Nestle. Like we're talking major corporations. We're talking $100 million deals on the regular. See, now that's a way to go. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Though I know we were like cowboys. We were, we were like cowboys in New York City. And then it, and it was because we grew up in like a really impressionable era. And, you know, the clubs and the, the, the girls and the restaurants and, the, you know, all that stuff was really impressionable. So it was kind of like New York City kids or like runner, like punch, like he'll tell you. He was running around wild. Like, that kid was a wild boy, you know what I mean? They they were driving Ferraris before anybody else was in New York City. Like, these guys were doing real heists, and they were collecting real paychecks, bags filled of money, and they they didn't know what else to do with it. We went out and just enjoyed it. Yeah. Like, you know, New York City's built on that. 
Yeah, that's what Punch said. He says you can look up at the skyscrapers and he can tell you who participated in what heist that got the money yeah. to start that company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's that's a big thing is like, you know, a lot of those guys are are now running big giant companies and you're like, Yay, Sean, I remember you you know, I'm Punch A, I'm Punch A, Sean A, this Joe, whatever, you know, hey Mike, I remember you guys, let's do some business together. It just kind of turns into like an always revolving thing. Like I, I was just running down investment, um, you know, the other day, and I was looking at some of the names on on who owns what, and I'm like, holy shit! Like some of these guys were gangsters 25 years ago, real gangsters. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't know. I, I I'm always impartial to it. I kind of love it and I hate it. So yeah, it's that dual life thing again. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's funny that you brought that up because that was. That was what got me in trouble, was my dual life, you know? Mark, Mark Boyer has a question for you. Get close to the microphone there, Mark. Yes, dear. Nice to talk to you, sir. Um, what does your father do? My dad was a detective in the bomb squad. Right. And how did how was his reaction to uh, your less than uh, legal activities? Yeah, so, I mean, my dad comes from a really questionable family. Um, half of them were detectives. The other were were, you know, gangsters, and they were all kind of questionable characters. But my dad was kind of, um, you know, the one that was really on the straight and narrow. And he used to say to me, when are the alphabet boys going to come get you? You know, when are they going to come get you, Sean? <laughs> you know, I was living in a fucking giant mansion in Westchester on a golf course, you know, 12 cameras around the house, two two giant security dogs, you know, uh, and, you know, machine guns up the wazoo, you know, and... um and my dad was like, when is the Alphabet Boys going to come get you? And I thought they would never come get me. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know what I mean? Does, yeah. any, does anybody know what a wazoo is? Yeah, I don't know, but I had one up there. That's like about four ninety five. Thank you. Now, when you were a kid, when you were a kid, Sean, I remember you know the kids dream about being a fireman or, or uh, you know, a cop or uh, be out in the woods with their bicycle. What, what, what were your goals, objectives? What did you dream of doing? Um, I always, I mean, from when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a bad guy. I did. I, I, I came up in a neighborhood that where the people that took care of you, you know, in, in the neighborhoods I grew up with were the bad guys. Uh, guys that were, you know, feared, guys that were, you know, um, only loved out of fear. They were, you know, they took care of, like, the guys that looked up to them, kind of like. And, you know, the guys that, unfortunately, you know, took me in were were, were real gangsters. They were real bad guys. Scale. So what kind of training do you go through? What kind of training? Yeah, <laughs> to be a bad guy. No, I mean, I think the streets just put you through a training. I didn't go through, like, some sort of uh, Boy Scout school how to be a bad guy. <laughs> no, but I, I didn't think, I think it was that. You know, I, coming from a very rough family, my dad was very rough. He was a real serious guy. Um, you know, I, I think between the combination of growing up in a very rough neighborhood and a very rough home, you kind of have no choice but to survive. I, I was a survivor because I was a dreamer. You know what I mean? My my mom's uh, Irish, so I was a dreamer and a schemer, you know? And um, I, I had to survive, and I had to just kind of figure things out. And my transition from the, the Bronx neighborhood into the Manhattan neighborhood, I kind of figured out how to get into the neighborhoods by using drugs. So, I mean, my first time out, you know, the first time I was selling drugs, I was 12 years old. I was transporting drugs from one deli to the next, from uh, Manhattan to the Bronx. So what's your favorite deli? My favorite, I mean, I like Cat's Deli, but uh, I don't really go get there too much anymore. That's the right answer. Yeah. In New York, that's the right answer. There's better, there's a better yeah, place yeah. here, but that's another story. Carnegie Deli used to be my favorite place. I until too. My friend, until my friend Jen was murdered upstairs um, by, like, you know, a bunch of weed dealers. She, she was brutally, brutally murdered um, trying to do a 10-pound deal. Um, for me and my boy, and she 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 got murdered for it. Like you know, they executed her in the middle of this goddamn apartment above the Carnegie Deli. Wow. Well, this was Sandy's apartment. I mean, yeah, not, but they own the whole building. Those people. They yeah, still, yeah, yeah. They own the whole and, building. And they closed the place, uh, famous because of the Woody Allen movie. But they closed the place because they just didn't feel like doing it anymore. And yeah, no, they just closed the place recently. But I stopped going there because of because of what happened to my friend. Yeah, I can uh, understand. I yeah, when I was in New York uh, the last time, it, there was a line out front of the Carnegie because they were closing up, and people wanted to get in there and uh, before they did. Yeah. No, I think Cats is better anyway. I it think, is. you know, those guys are doing the right thing the whole time. It's always consistent. 
Now we got a lot of yeah, jellies out here. My dad, my dad was pretty pissed. <laughs> he was pretty pissed. He was, um, he, you know, my dad at the time he was already retired from the bomb squad and he had started a, a security company with my uncle Mike Stapleton, and they were real serious dudes and they had homeland security ties and they had, you know. Um, presidential ties and they had a lot of real heavy politician ties and their company was really big and they they even they protect the federal reserve right now like my dad's company and they um my uh, dad, back, back up on protecting the federal reserve a private company protects the federal reserve yeah yeah if you go down to wall street all those companies that are down there with like the streets where they could like raise the, the whole entire street you know out of out of the thing with the big grates all the guys walking around, all the dogs. That's all MSA security. MSA security does the entire Federal Reserve building. Like if you go down there, there's like every entrance into the Federal Reserve is a bunch of guys with dogs. Those are all my. That's the MSA security. Wow. I feel very secure when I'm there. <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, these are all bomb squad guys, like Navy SEALs guys, you know, former paramilitary guys. But um, you know, I'm on my. Dad said, you know, you got to come down to my office and we got to talk. And I have, you know, his office filled with scary people. Um, and uh, in, in, in the middle of Rockefeller Center, I didn't know what was going to happen to me, you know, because I knew these guys had their own lives they had to worry about. And uh, I thought I was real happy that I was able to, like, walk out with both of my knees. Yeah, I was. Instead of walking out on them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a rough gig. Yeah, I've been there, yeah, done that. Uh, no, you haven't. Uh, well, how about the time the <laughs> ATF agent calls me into his office and wants to know whether or not it's a true story that this particular individual had a bullet with my name on it. And I said, Oh, that was true, yeah. That was a true story. I never did find out how the hell the ATF knew about that. Because there's only like three people in the room when the guy shows me the bullet with my name on it. Yeah. I gave him an 8 by 10 gloss and I said, here, shoot this. <laughs> That's your business. Getting back to your art, I have a picture in front of me of a scantily clad maiden <laughs> putting a bag over her head, which reminds me, you know what a three-bagger is, Sean? Yeah, so the... <laughs> That's a bag over that my is, head, a bag over her head, and a bag by the door in case someone walks in on us. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget Coyote Ugly. Yeah. I, I did that as an art collection a couple of art puzzles ago, and... Um, I shot that in my studio at the World Trade Center, um, and I did, uh, it's like kind of like a play on how women are kind of the predators, not the men, so that's kind of what it represents. And that's like topless uh, like joints. The, Who's exploited in the topless joints? It's not the women. Yes, but the thing is that, like, you know, women can kind of be the ones that are exploiting it, you know, and they're, they're natural predators, so... All the women that did are really strong women. I really have I have great relationships with all the women that did the the project. And um, we took some super high resolution images of the girls, and we uh, blew them up to really giant, you know, seven foot uh, prints on glass. And we sold them at my gallery down in Miami uh, a huh. couple art bows a little ago. Yeah, wow. that's a good deal. Um, good thing I have to on your taste of the young. Yeah, it'd be a very good taste in, in women, by the way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and good taste in bags as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the World Trade Center, wasn't there a, a thing where a bunch of artists were doing uh, murals and stuff in the uh, World Trade Center and we didn't get to see it? Yeah, so I, I curated that whole project. Um, I brought in most of the artists and I brought in um, a lot of the media, the New York Times, and all these different uh, people that I, you know, have connections with in uh, the newspapers and the news and. Uh, the people at the World Trade Center were so happy with, um, you know, with me. They kind of offered me a job that I didn't take, but then they wanted to keep me in the building, and um, uh, they gave me a free studio on the wow. 61st floor of the World Trade Center. So I have like a 40,000 square foot studio that they let me use for free, and I've had it for a couple of years. Wow, free, free space in New York. Uh, it's impossible. Yeah, I know. I know. I heard of. So, but the guy, the guy, you know, the guy who owns the building, Larry Silverstein, he's a real arts guy. Like he, he sponsors a lot of art and a lot of art programs, and um, you know, he he gave me this opportunity to bring in artists from all around the world to to be featured in this building, and people were really happy with it. Some people were not so happy with it because they felt exploited, but it was just a really good project, and. Um, 
you know, people had a really good time doing it, and, and, and I was really happy that I did it, and I made a lot of connections because of it. Um, a lot of really big collectors, art collectors from all around the world because of it, and, you know, I'm happy to still be a part of the, the family. It's interesting, as I mentioned uh, on our website, the, the, uh, the linkage of the crossover between art and crime, and that crime is often an art, and art is often a crime. Yes. Uh, so to define that, what do you think? Well, I mean, I don't want to talk about the degenerative art that the Nazis were taking the happy cow and, uh, you know, getting rid of that because it was degenerative. But even the street art, I mean, uh, you know, you climb into the tunnels and uh, uh, do an aerosol art, and as your uncle did what I call boxcar beautification. Uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> boxcar beautification. That sounds like something he would say. That's funny. <laughs> Uh, that's what I yeah, do. Yeah, no, I mean, I, my, my, my art career started off by, I didn't have a place to hide from, you know, the, the terrors of my house, so I figured out that on 72nd Street there was an entrance to the Amtrak tunnels, and I would go down there and I would learn how to uh, spray paint, and um, <clears throat> that place was littered with other graffiti artists, and people would come down there, and it was legendary. It was called the Freedom Tunnels. And, um, you know, they wrote a book about it called The Mole People, uh, which is really good. Um, but they, um, I kind of learned how to paint down there, and I kind of watched a lot of different people. And a lot of people from around the world visited the Freedom Tunnels and painted, and it was right down the block from my house. So I would go down there, and I would learn other styles and kind of see where people would do things from around the world. And I kind of just – that's why my stuff is called Layer Cake, because it comes from a lot of inspirations from a lot of different things. Um, you know, including street art and fine contemporary, and I take inspiration from the overlapping advertisements in New York. So, like, in the subways, like, all the advertisements are overlapping each other, and the people come up, they peel them off, they draw on them, they do graffiti, they scrape them off, they put up new ones. So my stuff is, like, layered from, like, my inspiration of New York right. City streets. There's a buddy of mine, filmmaker, uh, great Carl Krogstad, and uh, he was per prosecuted and persecuted of putting up these posters all over Seattle that said, Carl Krogstad makes films. And they were oh, everywhere. Oh, did he get fined? Oh, man, they tried to put him away. And oh. I mean, this was a big deal. I mean, it was, it was oh, a horrendous man. case. He finally, the judge finally threw it out. But, I mean, they were after him with a vengeance. You would have thought he was oh, John Dillinger yeah. or something, you know. Back in 2006, I was doing this campaign for the clothing company that I was running for at the time. And we made these big, giant tar stickers, and we waited for it to be the summer, and we waited for it to be, you know, 90-degree weather, 100-degree weather, and we would roll these giant tar stickers out, you know, that you put on top of the roof. We would have these giant asphalt letters cut out, and we would come up with these sayings like, you know, um, you know, read a book, forget movie. We would do all these different sayings, and we, they were really inspirational and kind of cool. And, you know, our famous one was Not So Cool Kids Love Origami. Yeah. And we, we would roll them out across the street, and it would take up intersections from one block to the next. And the cars would drive over them and from the heat, and they would become one with the entire, the entire intersection. Right. So you could see from, like, all the way to the top of the buildings and all over. So what happened was they became so popular, other famous artists started taking a credit for mine and my, mine and my cousin's work. Uh-oh. And it was, our, it was to promote us, right, our clothing company and, like, you know, ourselves because we were, like, vandals and graffiti artists and stuff. And other artists from around the world started taking a credit. This is before social media. This is before MySpace. There was only, like, one social media site that existed, and it was for you to share photos. It was like a Shutterstock right. or, like, you know, one of those websites where you share photos. Yeah. And people would start writing comments on it. This is before everything. Like, we're talking, you know, before any type of social media website. And so, finally, so we were like, oh, my God, I can't believe all these people are taking credit. And then until the New York City Department of Sanitation fined us $35,000 because they finally figured out what not-so-cool kids were, and it was registered to my buddy's house, you know, because he signed up for the LLC, and they sent him a $30,000 fine for... Um, <laughs> so was this defense that all these other people were taking credit? <laughs> yeah, and I know. Now we're like, oh, where does everybody else want to take the credit now? You know, we only ended up having to pay 7000 bucks, but... um. It was pretty funny, like, you know, that we ended up having, we, we, everybody else got famous off it, and we ended up paying for the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> What's this about designing bulletproof vests? So darts, 
there's a very famous company, Darts. Uh, they make uh, military-grade personal security vehicles. They actually make military parts for the Russian military. Um, and or I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not even sure if it's the Russian or if it's the Latvian military or it's, you, you know, former Soviet. I'm not sure what, I don't want to misquote it, but it's one of those. But he makes these these vehicles called darts. You should check them out. They're like, you know, million-dollar vehicles, $2 million vehicles. Kanye West has them. You know, Trump has one. A lot of different celebrities own own these um, these vehicles. They're bulletproof, shoot bombs at it. You know, they're insane. They can the alligator leather inside. They have, He makes the guy, Leo, who owns the company, is a sick freaking inventor. He has, like, well penis leather for the dashboard like he's really eccentric really crazy guy um i love him to death but so he kind of approached me and said he wants to make designer bulletproof vests with art and i you know i have a background um in 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 fashion and and design and we came up with um you know this he has a proprietary technology for these lightweight bulletproof vests that are as light as like a a t-shirt and so we're making um, a limited run of alligator and python skinned bulletproof vests where I'm going to paint on top of them and I'm going to hang them up in a gallery or, or see what celebrities want to buy them. If you want to give me a gift for my birthday, I was in Las Vegas a few weeks ago and there was an alligator uh, jacket. Really gorgeous. Where? From where? Gucci? Yeah, it's not, it wasn't Gucci. It was one of the other ones. It was only 15000 and I walked to come. Oh, that's cheap. That's yeah. cheap. <laughs> I walked down a little bit, and, and uh, he had, it'll look like uh, a python, lightweight. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, python alligator is my favorite. But uh, it was, uh, that one was only seven. So I was talking to Lydia. I said, why is this uh, uh, python only seven when the alligator uh, two doors down is 15K? She says, well, <laughs> this isn't really python. It's plastic. It looks like python oh. for 7,000. No, wasn't even real. Yeah, you need to kill a lot. You need to kill a lot of pythons to make a jacket. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, matching pants. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got an errant question running around my head that, that I wanted to ask earlier, and it's just <clears throat> flying in now. When the, the feds say that you, uh, they had you on two point seven billion dollars worth of uh, drugs of uh, marijuana. How the hell do they price that? How does that come together? Does he hear these? Well, um, they, they, I mean, they come up with it for, they, they, when they put these forensic accounts together, okay, and they sit there and they start kind of, they, they, all right, you, you say, you say they go, okay, I delivered 500 pounds a week for X amount of time, okay, and then they give it a monetary value. They go, they, all right, street value is six grand. So then they say, okay, per pound you did was six grand. That's the that's the monetary value. So then they come up with a thing. They go, okay, cool. You delivered personally over five thousand pounds, and then they give you a monetary value. And then if you plead guilty to it, then they're all of a sudden they're like, oh, you owe taxes on on one point seven. Oh God. You, huh? That's right, unbelievable. No, it's unbelievable the, how how it trickles down, how all the nonsense trickles down. It's really crazy. But that's how they kind of did it. They knew what the crew was kind of doing per year. And not only that, they allowed it. They allowed the crews to operate. Well, if, well, if, sir, if, if they, they can get your tax money, geez. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't. They're not. They're allowing. I mean, when I was sitting across from the DEA agents, and they and they knew like about people in Israel and all this other stuff, because they were kind of trying to maybe possibly link us to terroristic ties. They were like, you know, when they they don't need to give you a phone call after 24 hours. Like they they when they start talking terrorists and all that other shit, they don't need. They, you don't need a phone call. You don't need a warrant. You don't need anything. They just start saying, "Oh, they're part. How, how? What? They're funding secret wars in Israel. Two point seven billion dollars. These guys are doing a hundred million dollars worth of marijuana trafficking a month. They're sending it back to Israel. They're sending it back to Canada. And that money's going back to Israel. It's going to the Jews. It's going to the Italians. It's going to the um, the Hell's Angels. They'll say anything. Yeah, they just pulled so that up. They pulled that on punch. Like, 
They pulled that on Pines, too. I recall that they came to him and said, we have your fingerprints all over rocket launchers going to uh, Serbia or uh, Bosnia or some damn place. Yeah. It was BS. Total BS. Hey, hey, listen, so so you're sitting there, and they're like, they're like questioning you about a guy that, that doesn't have his head in Chicago, and you're like, what? No, I was just delivering marijuana. I don't know anything about that. And they're like, no, you know all about it, and your buddy was left in the back of a... Your buddy was left in the back of the truck with all his jewelry on. He had a hundred thousand dollars worth of jewelry on, and somebody whacked him. And it doesn't that doesn't that worry you? And I'm like, oh my god. I'm like, I don't know about dead head, headless guys. I don't know about secret wars in Israel. That's the thing. They, when they when they try to start talking that, you're like, oh my god, this is never gonna end with these guys, you know. And then and and when I got picked up, I had my assistant with me. He was 19 years old. You know, maybe he was 20 at the time, but he was a young kid. And then they, and when the feds got a hold of him, boy, I thought it was over. For me. I thought it was over. But he did the right thing. He was. He, I, I couldn't. I couldn't ask for a better friend. You know, he stood there and he uh, he just kept his mouth shut. And even though they scared him and they told him that that I was, you know, part of organized crime and I was this and I was that, and you know, they were gonna come for his family because now now I'm I'm scared that he's stitching on me and the, the, they they put irrational fear they they like they like set the wrong dialect you know what i mean they don't they don't say the right things they talk they talk in in more danger they put people in more danger when they when they do these big when they do these big cases you know 2.7 billion dollars you understand what all of a sudden now there's like a bunch of dangerous guys going oh sean's involved with the crew and we're talking 10 years ago 11 years ago they're like sean's with a big crew doing to that much money? Oh, what does he have in his house? Then all of a sudden, all the cops started. I got chased out of the Bronx. I live out in the east end of Long Island because the guys in the Bronx were chasing after us because a dirty crew of cops, I'm not going to say the prison, they were after us because all of a sudden they found out that I was in the neighborhood. And they did their research on me and they did their research on my friends and they're like, oh, Let's go see if he's got some of that money. And they start fucking locking me up, harassing me, setting my car on fire, trying to, you know, harass my, 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 my kids and my girl. And it was a fucking nightmare. Hmm. A nightmare to be lived and survived. So no more nightmares, yeah. right? You're, you're done in the nightmare business? Yeah, I'm done in the nightmare business. Okay. That's important. Meanwhile, your life well, is I'm, I'm in now. the clean living, eating healthy, living on the beach. I'm painting paintings. I'm selling paintings around the world. I'm doing uh, shows in Dallas, shows in London, shows in Miami, shows in, you know, I got paintings going to Dubai, and I got paintings going to Spain, and paintings going to Mexico and Sweden and Germany, you know, to private collectors, and I'm happy. I got a beautiful studio. I just paint. I, you know, I, I enjoy my life now. I don't have you to do anything. The, I don't have to you, worry about this shit. You got kids? Yeah, I have a I have a 15 year old daughter and 11 year old son. There you go, one of each. Best way to go. That's the yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, my 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 life is um, it's it's not boring in any sense, but what it was compared to was it's very it's very innocent now. It's very very innocent. I drive at the speed limit as I don't want to get pulled over. I don't I <laughs> I don't do I don't steal. Uh, Candy from a child, I don't do nothing. I just stay, stay straight. Makes more sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you're living a blessed life now. That's I, I, sure. I've always thought that the criminals would use the extraordinary brain power a lot of them have uh, to go straight with it. They'd make more money. We, well, uh, I don't know about that, but, yeah, you can. Yeah, sure. So my thing is now I'm 38 years old. I feel like I started 10, 15 years too late. You know what I mean? But I'm doing really good. But a lot of the guys, a lot of my counterparts are like, you know, they're killing it. There's, you know, $60,000, $70,000 per painting. You know, my my average is like $15,000 for a painting. And even though I sell a lot of paintings, but these guys are, don't, they have to sell half the amount that I have to paint, you know, so, to make the so same let, amount of money they do. Let me, ask this you question, know? Like, let me ask this question like the feds would ask. So if you sell 15000 a painting, how many paintings do you sell a week? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. No. I don't know. Just trying to figure out how much money you have because I'm going to It depends. It depends. Yeah. Great. Maybe, maybe, maybe when I'm older, I'll tell all those how many paintings I sold. Yeah, there you go. So your mother, uh, Irish, your father was uh, what? Is, is what? He's a 
Italian. He was Italian. Yeah, well, we don't know because he was adopted. I mean, my grandfather was adopted by German Jews, but my grandfather was Italian. Okay. Well, you stuck with the German Jews. Yeah, you should have done that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he did, and um, you know, and um, I think he he was raised in Arthur Avenue in the Bronx, and he was like the only German Jew. Uh, he was the only Italian kid ra being raised by German Jews. Yeah. Um. And in all Italian neighborhoods, so I think he grew up kind of confused. So now I understand why you uh, picked Katz's Deli in New York is the best one. <laughs> it's in your bloodstream somewhere. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, because when I was a kid, um, I, I never went to school and I sucked, so I had to go to weekend school, too, because I sucked so bad. And my dad, who was so angry that he that he that I had to be fucking babysitted to go to weekend school, Okay, that he would drive me down, and the school was on the it was around the block from uh, Katz's Deli. So my dad taught me kind of how to learn how to get the sandwiches and avoid the lines. Right. So you go to the hot dog. This is uh, privileged information I'm giving you guys. Uh, you go to the hot dog guy first. You give get hot dogs from him because that's the first guy in the first line, right? And that's the only thing you can like hot dogs. And then you give him a big tip. And he'll usually say, what else can I get you? And then you tell him, and then he'll go get you the rest of the food. Right. And you don't got to wait on any of those other lines. See, at the, at the Carnegie. Uh, no, at, at Katz's. No, Katz's I understand Deli. that, but at the Carnegie, I, I was I was wired into the Carnegie uh, because of the Parker family. Uh, and uh, in order for me to get any kind of schlep at the Carnegie, here's, here's what it was. They knew I was coming, which meant I didn't have to stand in line that long. And then when I got into the restaurant, I didn't get a discount, but I did get cloth napkins instead of paper. Oh, that was it. <laughs> that was my big deal. What a deal! And sit with Henny Youngman as he dripped uh, ice cream on his shirt. But that—that was that, the days. Take my cone, please. please. Yeah, I, I I gotta listen to some of Punch's interviews. Uh, do you guys have them live on your on your website? Yeah, actually, uh, uh, if you uh, uh, yeah, they're actually, <laughs> if you go to uh, Anchor FM, anchor.fm, or you can uh, go on iTunes, you can find our show, True Crime Uncensored. And like, I think two or three of the ones with Punch are up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah Punch Punch is uh, kind of a regular guest with us, and, and uh, always fascinating. And I must say... Listen, I... I don't. I, I. I was thinking to myself, a guy like him that operated as long. I mean, look, he spent a lot of time in prison, so he spent a lot of time not being able to hustle. But the time that he, the times that he was out hustling, I can't imagine how many stories he has. Like it's just because I. I feel like I operated at maybe five percent of what guys like he did and some of the other guys in the neighborhood did, and I operated really big, really large way. And I, I have so many stories, but guys like him and some of the other guys, they, I mean, like, you know, if unless people like us are actually out there telling those stories, they're just going to die and no one's going to ever know. That's, uh, yeah, that's why I'm doing this, this trilogy of books with Pudge. The first one is done. It's called uh, it's the American Panther Trilogy. And uh, I, I can't wait. I can't even tell you how fucking excited I am for it. Well, the first one is called Stealing Manhattan. And it wow. goes from 1947, about the early 40s with his dad, and goes up to uh, about uh, uh, 96. And he did have access to his father. Oh, yeah. Well, his, father, his father did memoirs <laughs> uh, on tape. Oh, he did? Yeah, because he's, he's, he's not here in the States. Yeah, he retired. Yeah, he, he retired. Uh, basically, well, never captured, never prosecuted, never went to prison. Well, Sean... Uh, no, Sean, well, God bless. God bless. Sean Punch was right. Uh, uh, we are so glad that you spent some time with us today. We will definitely hope that you come back. And if cool. you're out there west, you come and see us here in the Lit Up Lounge. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you. Hey, bro. Hey. Yeah. I was just wondering. Uh, yeah. What's next? Magic Bad Animals, the deepest of Decadence Live, the Lighting Up Lounge, and Our Radio Live.com.